Well, hello everybody again. My name is Kyle. And for those of you here in Uplift in person, welcome to you. And for those who are going to be listening on our podcast, Anchor Point, I'm glad that you are here as well. You know this by now. We are in a series called Questioning Jesus, where we are examining some of the questions that were asked of Jesus and specifically some of the questions that he answered. And the next question was asked by a man not unfamiliar at all in personality, in persona. He's successful, experienced, respected. He's the kind of guy that expected his world to be completely in order. He had a regiment, he had a routine, but this routine was completely disrupted by Jesus. And as we tell the story in a minute, you're gonna realize this, that he had his feelers out for Jesus because he had seen men like Jesus before. Let me tell you about a couple of these guys. So let's do a little bit of Jewish history for a minute. The death of Herod the Great, he's the great king that's found in our gospels. His life and his legacy cast a long shadow in the gospels. Well, when he died about 4 BC, he left the Jewish people in a very, very serious and dire situation. His building projects had a lot, used a lot of Jewish labor. He took a lot of Jewish land and he did all this to satisfy his ego and the Jewish people, they they weren't very upset when he passed away. So when he died, it didn't take long for the claimants to the throne to pop up. Let me tell you about a couple of these guys. The first was a man named Judas of Galilee. You can Google this guy. That's how we know him. He he led a group of men after the death of Herod the Great. He led a group of men to the royal Roman palace in the Jewish city called Sephorus, where when he got there, he seized all the weapons and he led this massive revolt with intentions of returning all the land that was stolen to its owners. And then he would be installed as the king of Israel. History does not record his death but it does record his failure. He was obviously never made king, but we do know this. Both of his sons were crucified. He wasn't the only claimant to the title of Messiah and king after the death of Herod the Great. One of Herod's own slaves, a slave named Simon, actually took Herod's crown when Herod passed away, claimed himself as king, put the crown on his head, and he and his followers burned a royal palace in the city of Jericho, and then returned the land to its owners in that city. And Simon, too, was eventually captured and put to death. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus, we've talked about that guy here, he wrote about this particular era of Jewish history after the death of Herod the Great. I want to read to you what he wrote in his book, Antiquities. And so Judea, the area in which Jesus lived, Judea was filled with outlaws. Anyone might make himself king as the head of a band of rebels who fell in with him. And then he would press on to the destruction of the community. They were in some small measure indeed, and in small matters, hurtful to the Romans, but the murders they committed upon their own people lasted a long while. In other words, there was no shortage of men who claimed to be the savior of their people in the time in which Jesus lived. The political situation in Judea was volatile, And it was violent, and it was into this situation that Jesus 
emerged. He was easily considered a leader of the people. We read about that, a possible king, even in this political climate. All of the gospels share that he was responsible for hand-picking young, anxious men to follow him. And it is in the gospel of John, in particular, that we find this out about Jesus. You can open your Bibles if you have them. We're going to be in John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. At the, end of the, of the chap, at the end of chapter 2, this is what John wrote. Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. It's at the very end, verse 23. Jesus did not invade any Roman strongholds, but he did invade the temple. You know this story, only to halt the marketplace atmosphere there. He performed miracles. He taught powerfully. He didn't kill anybody. He was different than the outlaws. He was different than the rebels. And people noticed, but their belief in him was not the belief he wanted. People followed him because of his abilities. We do the same thing today. They followed him because of his charisma. So John included this disclaimer from the following two in the last two verses of John chapter two. This is beginning in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Verse 25, and he needed no one to bear witness about man or mankind or humanity for he himself knew what was in a man. So it's into this context, then, that we're introduced to Nicodemus. He's an older man, a man of routine. He's respected. He's educated, a member of the Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus wanted to know if Jesus was for real, because Nicodemus, he'd seen all this before. He was undoubtedly aware of Judas of Galilee, the man who invaded the Roman palace, and he undoubtedly knew about Herod's slave, Simon, who decided to wear Herod's crown. Nicodemus knew the political climate, and he knew that climate produced a Messiah a minute. He knew that Roman troops were sent to Galilee to suppress all of these rebels. So was Jesus the harbinger of more Roman interference or was he not? Or maybe was he the leader that they thought would come? He didn't know. And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, they didn't know either. So Nicodemus had to find out. Let's read this from John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. You know what we call him? Nick at night. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless that you do unless God is with them. Now, we're going to dissect this story in just a minute, but it's important before we do that to notice two plurals here. The first is that Nicodemus mentioned miraculous signs, more than one. Even though the Gospel of John to this point had only recorded one sign so far. But John just previously wrote in chapter 2, we just read this, that people believed in Jesus because of his plural, his miraculous signs. Why am I talking about this? Well, I'm saying this because it's fair to say that 
Nicodemus was probably one of those people. He believed in Jesus, but he believed in Jesus for the wrong reasons. So that's the first plural. Here's the second one. Nicodemus speaks in the first person plural. Read that again. He says, we know, not I know, we know. Most scholars think that Nicodemus is speaking for a group of Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. In other words, he's the spokesperson for a group just like him, older, wiser, experienced, seen it all, who wonders if Jesus is for real. So Nicodemus is one of the crowd and one of a group of Pharisees who believed in Jesus because of his signs. But he doesn't ask a question, not yet, not until Jesus provokes him. So let's read again from John chapter 3. We're going to start back over in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered him, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a little sarcasm there, but this is our question for this session. How can someone be born again when they're old? Nicodemus asked this question out of confusion. He hadn't asked what he needed to do to see the kingdom of God. He really hadn't asked anything at all. He probably hoped for a good conversation, but this doesn't seem at all like what he had in mind because Jesus responds to his question with this statement, this answer about being born again. Read along with me in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him in verse 9, how can these things be? Now we know from other stories about Jesus that his parables in the other Gospels, John doesn't have any parables, but his parables in the other Gospels, they're chiefly concerned with defining and identifying this phrase, the kingdom of God. He often compared the kingdom of God to seed or to light or to salt or to leaven. But right here, Jesus doesn't make any, any of those comparisons at all. He says something a little different and quite frankly, a little remarkable. That you can't even see the kingdom of God until you admit that there's another way to see it until you see it from above. Now say it that way because this phrase in your Bibles that we translate born again, it actually has a dual meaning in the Greek language 
the original Greek language of this gospel. It could mean born again, but it also means, and your Bible probably has a footnote that sends you down to the bottom of the page, it also means to be born from above. So we have Nicodemus, this experienced scholar, the older Pharisee, the man who's seen it all. He chose the most basic meaning of this phrase, born again, And he does not consider the possibility of a deeper, more spiritual understanding of being born from above. It's okay to understand his confusion. He's a born Jew. Forget any supernatural inclination here. He's already born into the most prized people on the planet. And he's respected in that people. He's a ruler. He's a teacher. He is the pinnacle of God's people. He has no need to be born again. This phrase makes no sense to him. But this is the nuance of Jesus' provocation. He encouraged Nicodemus to be born again by being born from above. Later in this chapter, in this conversation, Jesus references a famous story from the life of Moses. You remember this. Poisonous snakes were released into the encampment of the wandering Israelites. And after asking God for deliverance, Moses was told to erect a bronze snake on a staff and to tell the people that they only need to look at it to be saved. You remember that story? They just looked at the bronze snake. Their bites would be healed. The venom would be rendered harmless. Now, to you and me, it's rather obvious that Jesus was using this story to tell about his own death. But he also knew something else. That there was a venom spreading inside of Nicodemus. It's a venom that had subtracted all mystery and all surprise from God and had limited God had limited the creator of all things to a deity who could only be appeased by following a list of unfollowable laws. It was a venom that had no room for a Messiah, much more the Messiah. It allowed Nicodemus to only see Jesus as a great teacher a man from God. And it kept Nicodemus from seeing Jesus as God himself. That was the venom inside of him. And Jesus knew this. Nicodemus, he wasn't necessarily jaded by previous imposters, but he he was rather myopic because he had closed the door to the coming of of the Messiah. He had closed the door to the necessity of a Messiah. And that is precisely what Jesus said that he needed. As the gatekeeper and as the preeminent Pharisee, Nicodemus had grown accustomed to sneering at those who weren't righteous. He'd grown accustomed to a calculus that made quick, decisive judgments. He became a gatekeeper to God. He had grown comfortable actually playing God. He was the decider of righteousness. So Jesus' response 
was radical to this educated Pharisee. God doesn't work that way. His presence as the Spirit is like the wind. It blows wherever it chooses. God is a God of mystery and surprise and creativity. He's not a God in a cage. He's not a God limited to a book or a series of laws. He is the God who anoints and whose Messiah is much, much more than a miracle worker. So, Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born from above. And then he qualified that. He defined that by saying that he needed to be born of, and here's the phrase, water and spirit. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting phrase. It's a tricky phrase. It's been hijacked by post-resurrection believers as a, as a reference to water baptism. It's okay to refer to it that way, but it's okay to also know that Nicodemus wouldn't have heard it that way. He wouldn't have seen any need to be baptized in water. No one else was. And Jesus has not been crucified or resurrected yet. So what in the world does this phrase mean? Well, to understand this, we need to take a trip to John chapter 7. So if you're in your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 7. When you get there, you're going to find Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's in Jerusalem. Now, at the end of that feast, an annual ritual was performed. The high priest brought a pitcher of water to the steps of the temple, and there with much fanfare and celebration, the high priest poured the water into a silver bowl, and then he offered it as a sacrifice, pouring it out before the Lord. Now, this ritual, it was meant to celebrate God's faithfulness when God produced water from a rock for the wandering Jewish refugees. The Old Testament books of Ezekiel and Nehemiah both write about this episode, and they equated that time of water from a rock, they equated that to a time that was still future for them when God would forever satisfy the thirst of his people. So it's in this ritual then, in John 7, when Jesus says these remarkable words, this is from verse 37, if anyone, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus, Jesus is the water. He's the living water. He says so. He is the fulfillment of every prophecy that God would one day satisfy the thirsts of his people. In Jesus, that happens. And it is glorious. But then, John the writer gives us a little more insight into Jesus' statement. So let's keep reading. This is from John 7, verse 39. The Apostle John, the writer of this gospel, includes this little disclaimer here. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now did you catch that? In Jesus, water and Spirit are combined. They're together. They're mixed up. So this is how we know that Jesus meant himself when he spoke to Nicodemus about being born of 
water and spirit. He was telling Nicodemus that there have been some posers, some imposters, some claimants to the title of Messiah, but none can fulfill every desire, every salvation, and none can defy every preconceived notion of God like Jesus. Nicodemus, and to those of us here and those of us listening, it's time for us to see the kingdom of God in a different way. It's time to see it through, through Jesus. There's a postscript to this story. Nicodemus, we discover, was actually born again. He was born from above. He's mentioned two more times in the Gospel of John. The second time and the next time we see him, John 7, he stands up to the Pharisees who were trying to arrest Jesus. And the third and final time that we see Nicodemus in the Gospel of John is after Jesus' death. He was there to help prepare Jesus' body for burial. He was. He was born again. He was born from above. He came to see Jesus as the anointed of God, the bringer of change, the fulfiller of every law, and the savior of the world, the gift given by God to save it and to save us. Let's pray together as we close. We are thankful, God, for the gift of Jesus. We're thankful for our birth from above, this birth that he offers. Give us the power and the strength and the humility to see him as your anointed, as our Messiah, and give us the power to believe in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.